As children, we become accustomed to hearing fairy tales. They're always pleasant stories, and they're comforting to hear because good always triumphs over evil. At least, this is the way it is in fairy tales. Fairy tales are not dangerous for our children, and are probably even good for them up to a point. However, in the real world, in which you and I must live, fairy tales are dangerous. They're dangerous because they're untrue. Anything which is untrue is dangerous. And it is all the more dangerous when the fairy tale becomes accepted as reality simply because it has an official seal of approval or because honorable men announce that you must believe it or because powerful elements of the press tell you that the fairy tale is true. The conclusion of the Warren report that President Kennedy was killed by a lone assassin is a fairy tale. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. This week's episode will be the first of a several-part series where we cover the Jim Garrison investigation. Jim Garrison was a district attorney of Orleans Parish, Louisiana, from 1962 to 1973, and later a federal judge for appeals. A member of the Democratic Party, he is best known for his investigations into the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the prosecution of New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw to that effect in 1969, which ended in Shaw's acquittal. He wrote three published books, one of which became a prime source for Oliver Stone's film JFK in 1991, in which Garrison was portrayed by actor Kevin Costner, while Garrison himself made a cameo appearance as Earl Warren. Jim Garrison was born in Knoxville, Iowa on November 20, 1921. His family moved to Chicago, and after Pearl Harbor, Garrison joined the U.S. Army. In 1942, he took part in the fighting in Europe. After the war, Garrison attended Tular Law School in New Orleans. He then joined the Federal Bureau of Investigations and served as a special agent in Seattle and Tacoma. In 1954, Garrison returned to New Orleans, where he became assistant district attorney. Without question, he was the most impressive of the 20 or so lawyers on the district attorney's staff. In 1961, Garrison was elected as the city's district attorney. He developed a good reputation, and in his first two years, he never lost a case. Three days after the assassination of President Kennedy, Garrison would do something that would change his life and history forever, when he would bring David Ferry in for questioning regarding his relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. David Ferry was brought to Jim Garrison's office on Monday, November 25, 1963, the day of President Kennedy's funeral. Here's how the movie JFK portrays that first initial interview with Ferry. Chief, David Ferry. Come on in, Dave. Thank you for coming. You remember me, Mr. Garrison? I met you on Carondelet Street right after your election. I congratulated you. How could I forget? You made quite a first impression. And I've heard over the years you're quite a first-rate pilot, Dave. Really? Yeah, legend has it you can get in and out of any field no matter how small. I'm a bit of a pilot myself. Flew grasshoppers for the field artillery in the war. Hey, have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Mind if I smoke, Mr. Garrison? How could I? Dave, as you know, President Kennedy was assassinated on Friday. A man named Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested as a suspect and was then murdered yesterday by a man named Jack Ruby. You've heard reports that Oswald spent the summer here in New Orleans, and we've been advised that you knew Oswald pretty well. I never met anybody named Oswald. 
Anybody told you that has to be crazy. But you're all where he served in your Civil Air Patrol unit when he was a teenager. No, if he did, I don't remember him. I mean, there were lots of boys in and out, you know. Well, I'm sure you've seen this. Perhaps you knew this man under another name. No, I never saw him before in my life. Well, that must have been mistaken information we got then. Thanks for straightening it out for us. But really, the origins of Garrison's case can be traced to an argument between New Orleans residents Guy Bannister and Jack Martin. On November 22, 1963, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated, Bannister pistol whipped Martin after a heated exchange. Jack Martin was an investigator for Guy Bannister at his private detective agency located at 544 Camp Street in New Orleans. Bannister thought Martin had taken some highly confidential files from his office. Over the next few days, Martin told authorities and reporters that Bannister had often been in the company of a man named David Ferry, who Martin said might have been involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. Martin told the New Orleans police that Ferry knew accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, going back to when both men had served together in the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol, and that Ferry was, quote, supposed to have been the getaway pilot in the assassination, end quote. Ferry told Garrison that on the day of the assassination, he had driven to Houston in order to go ice skating. Yes, that's right, ice skating. That sounds believable, doesn't it? Garrison thought he was lying and handed him over to the FBI. However, after a very brief interview, he was released. So Garrison let it be, for a while anyway, until a chance meeting in 1965 with Hale Boggs, a congressman from Louisiana and a former member of the Warren Commission. Boggs told Garrison he had serious doubts that Oswald was a lone gunman. This encouraged Garrison to read the Warren Report and books on the assassination by Mark Lane, Edward J. Epstein, and Harold Weisberg. Jim Garrison then recruited Tom Bethel to investigate the case. He interviewed Vince Salandria, who was a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Salandria was one of the first people to criticize the Warren Report. In 1964, he published an article in the Legal Intelligencer where he argued that the wounds on President Kennedy suggested he had not been killed by a lone gunman. Over the next few years, Salandria argued that Kennedy had been assassinated by, quote, the national security state, end quote, because he was trying to bring an end to the Cold War. He claimed that the conspirators were the CIA and military leaders who wanted to stop President Kennedy's effort to end the Cold War. Salandria would state in his 1999 book titled JFK Assassination, A False Mystery Concealing State Crimes that, quote, immediately following the assassination, I began to collect news items about Lee Harvey Oswald. A pattern began to emerge. Oswald's alleged affection to the Soviets, his alleged Castro leanings as a sole member of a Fair Play for Cuba committee chapter in New Orleans, his posing with a rifle and a Russian newspaper his writings to the Communist Party, his study of the Russian language while in the Marine Corps, all of this told me he was not a genuine leftist or communist, but rather a U.S. intelligence agent, end quote. This was in 63. Sure, Guy Bannister, ex-FBI man, died a couple years ago. Bannister headed the Chicago office. When he retired, he became a private eye here. I used to have lunch with him. John Birch Society, Minute Oh, yeah, I remember that. Right there to the right of Attila the Hunt. Used to recruit college students, infiltrate radical organizations on campus. Headed the Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean. All out of this office. Come around here, I want to show you something. See that? Now take a look here. 544 Camp Street. 531 Lafayette Street. 
Same building, right? But with different addresses and different entrances, both going to the same place, to the office upstairs. Guess who used this address? The Harvey Oswald. Now, how do we know he was here? Because this office address was stamped on the Pro Castro leaflets he was handing out in the summer 63 down on Canal Street. Now, these are the same leaflets they found in his garage in Dallas. What's this? What the hell is this doing on this piece of paper? After the arrest, 544 Camp Street never appeared on the pamphlets again. Yes. He was arrested that day for fighting with some anti-Castro Cubans. But actually, he had contacted them a few days earlier as an ex-Marine trying to join their anti-Castro crusade. When they heard he was now pro-Castro, well, they paid him a visit. Where is that shit? You lie to me, you hypocrite. Liar, you son of a bitch. People do not take this paper. This is communist propaganda. Fellas, why you hit me? Come on, you piece of shit. Go back to Moscow. There was no real fight, and the arresting lieutenant later said he felt it was a staged incident. In jail, Oswald has a private session with Special Agent John Quigley of the FBI. Oswald is released, and Quigley destroys his notes from the interview. The arrest gets him a lot of publicity, and as a result, Oswald appears on a local TV but debate. But you, uh, you are a communist, are you not? Uh, no, Mr. Bringier. Uh, I am not a, a, a communist. I'm Marxist-Leninist. You are not a communist, but you are a Marxist-Leninist? What is the difference? And here's another one for you. What would you say if I told you the Oswald was trained in the Russian language when he was a Marine? i say he's probably getting intelligence training. Well, if you run the Marines, who would be running that training? Office of Naval Intelligence. Take a look across the street. Post office. Upstairs in 1963, that was the Office of Naval Intelligence. Just by coincidence, banished it before he was FBI, was O and I. Now, what's that little saying they have? Once O and I, always O and I. Well, he likes working near his old pals. Bill, Lou, we are standing in the heart of the United States government's intelligence community in New Orleans. That's the FBI there. Right? That's the CIA. That's the Secret Service. That's the ONI. Now, doesn't this seem to you a rather strange place for a communist to spend his spare time? What you driving at, boss? We're going back into the case, Lou. Murder of the president. Good Lord, wake me up. I must be dreaming. In the fall of 1966, Garrison began to re-examine the Kennedy assassination. Garrison became convinced that a group of right-wing activists, which he believed included David Ferry, Guy Bannister, and a man named Clay Shaw, who was the director of the International Trademark in New Orleans, were involved in a conspiracy with elements of the CIA to kill President Kennedy. Garrison would later say that the motive for the assassination was anger over Kennedy's foreign policy, especially Kennedy's efforts to find a political rather than a military solution in Cuba and Southeast Asia, and his efforts towards a peaceful relationship with the Soviet Union. Garrison also believed that Shaw, Bannister, and Ferry had conspired to set up Lee Harvey Oswald as a patsy in the assassination. News of Garrison's investigation was reported in the New Orleans State Item on February 17, 1967. On February 22, 1967, less than a week after the newspaper story broke of Garrison's investigation, David Ferry, then his chief suspect, was found dead in his apartment from a brain aneurysm. Garrison suspected that Ferry had been murdered despite the coroner's report that his death was due to natural causes. According to Garrison, the day the news of Garrison's investigation broke, Ferry had called one of Garrison's investigators, Lou Ivan, and warned him that, quote, I'm a dead man, end quote. 
A couple of days before he was found dead, Jim Garrison and a couple of his investigators paid David Ferry a visit. Here's how the movie JFK portrayed that meeting with David Ferry in his apartment with Jim Garrison and some of his investigators. My neck is killing me. I got cancer I've had for years. I've been working with Mike, you know, trying to find a cure. Did you ever work for the CIA? You make it sound like some remote fucking experience in ancient history. Man, you don't leave the agency. you, I guarantee it. They'll get to you, too. They'll destroy you. They're untouchable, man. With Ferry dead, Garrison began to focus his attention on Clay Shaw, the director of the International Trade Mart in New Orleans. Garrison had Shaw arrested on March 1, 1967, charging him with being part of a conspiracy in the John F. Kennedy assassination. After several weeks of investigation in New Orleans, a team of reporters said that District Attorney Jim Garrison and his staff have intimidated, bribed, and even drugged witnesses in their attempt to prove a conspiracy involving New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Another blow-the-belt blow to Garrison was when NBC News broadcast on Garrison's JFK probe. NBC presented numerous witnesses making damaging allegations about the methods employed by the District Attorney and his staff. It was painfully obvious that NBC News had fabricated a smear campaign against Jim Garrison and his investigation. After NBC published the critical attack on Jim Garrison and his, at the time, ongoing investigation of the murder of John F. Kennedy, Garrison was invited by his attackers to present his defense in a 27-minute program. 
It was a fair rider replay where the famous prosecutor had the chance to expose his views on the case, the evidence he collected, the facts he claimed were true or false, and of course, his criticism on the network. Here's the rare audio from that program featuring District Attorney Jim Garrison. I think it's important that you hear this. The following time period has been made available to District Attorney Jim Garrison of New Orleans to reply to an NBC News program broadcast on June 19th. In that program, NBC News examined some of the methods used by Mr. Garrison in his investigation of what he charges was a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. Except for the opening and closing announcements, this program has been prepared under Mr. Garrison's sole supervision. Mr. Garrison. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about truth and about fairy tales, about justice and about injustice. In the months to follow, you're going to learn that many of the things which some of the major news agencies have been telling you are untrue. You're going to learn that although you are citizens of the United States, information concerning the cause of the death of your president has been withheld from you. In the months to come, you will learn to your own satisfaction that President Kennedy was not killed by a lone assassin. You will learn that there has been and continues to be a concerted effort to keep you from learning these facts. And you will learn, I assure you, that what I have been trying to tell you and what I'm telling you tonight is true. As children, we become accustomed to hearing fairy tales. They're always pleasant stories, and they're comforting to hear because good always triumphs over evil. At least, this is the way it is in fairy tales. Fairy tales are not dangerous for our children and are probably even good for them up to a point. However, in the real world in which you and I must live, fairy tales are dangerous. They're dangerous because they're untrue. Anything which is untrue is dangerous. And it is all the more dangerous when a fairy tale becomes accepted as reality simply because it has an official seal of approval, or because honorable men announce that you must believe it, or because powerful elements of the press tell you that the fairy tale is true. The conclusion of the Warren report that President Kennedy was killed by a lone assassin is a fairy tale. This does not mean that the men on the Warren Commission were aware at the time that their conclusion was totally untrue, nor does it mean necessarily that these men had any sinister motives. It does mean that the conclusion that no conspiracy existed and that Lee Oswald was the lone assassin is a fiction and a myth and that it should be brought to an end. The people of this country don't have to be protected from the truth. This country was not built on the idea that a handful of nobles, whether located in our federal agencies in Washington, D.C., or in the news agencies in New York, should decide what was good for the people to know and what they should not know. This is a totalitarian concept, which presumes that the leaders of our federal government and the men in control of the powerful press media constitute a special elite, which by virtue of their nobility and their brilliance, empower them to think for the people. Personally, I would rather put my confidence in the common sense of the people of this country. The truth about the assassination of the president has been concealed from you long enough. Those forces which are fighting so hard today to tell you that they have examined the Warren report 
and that everything is fine, and that our investigation has uncovered nothing, are not merely going to lose this fight. They have already lost it. Now let me tell you why President Kennedy was murdered and how he was murdered. I also want to give you a few examples which will show you how the conclusion reached for the Warren Commission is totally impossible. President Kennedy was assassinated by men who sought to obtain a radical change in our foreign policy, particularly with regard to Cuba. You recall that under President Kennedy, the Cold War began to thaw, and there were new signs of an effort on the part of the Soviet Union and ourselves to understand each other. On the map, this appears to be merely a large island off the coast of Florida. But for many men, it meant a good deal more than this. In 1963, a great variety of interests existed which not only desired an American-supported invasion of Castro's Cuba, but took it for granted that it was inevitable. In the minds of many men, this island represented a tremendous emotional landmark because they had steered their courses toward it for so long and with such intensity. In the fall of 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. It was followed by a pronounced new attitude towards Cuba on the part of the United States. Cuba, after this, was no longer regarded as an enemy and was no longer regarded as fair game for those men who, for one reason or another, focused their attention on this island. The new signs of understanding between Russia and the United States continued to develop. In June of 1963, President Kennedy, addressing students at the American University in Washington, told them, we breathe the same air as the Russians. He said, we should try to live together in peace on this earth. But at this point, some individuals transferred their hostile attention from Fidel Castro to John F. Kennedy. They planned the president's assassination, and they planned it well. The evidence indicates that he was shot at from two different directions in the rear, and also from the right front. We know that shooting was coming from two separate directions in the rear because the president and Governor Connolly were hit in the back within split seconds of each other. And this necessarily had to happen with two bullets coming from two different rifles. We know that the president was being shot at from the Grassy Knoll area on the right front because most of the people in Dealey Plaza heard the shots coming from there and because at least one of the president's wounds was an entry wound from the front and because men were seen running from the Grassy Knoll area immediately afterwards. That's why the idea of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin of the president is a fairy tale and should be brought to an end. If you, the people of the United States, will learn the truth that the president was assassinated by men who were once connected with the Central Intelligence Agency, of course, this might reflect on the dignity of the CIA. But I happen to believe that our form of government is strong enough to survive the truth. I believe that you are entitled to the truth about how your president was shot down in the street and how it was done. Instead, some of the most powerful news agencies we have in our country have worked hard to convince you that everything is all right, 
They did not tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald's fingerprints were not found on the gun, which was supposed to kill the president. And they did not tell you that nitrate tests exonerated Lee Oswald from the actual shooting by showing that he had not fired a rifle that day. And they did not tell you that it was virtually impossible for Oswald to have taken his fingerprints off the gun, hidden the gun, and gone down four flights of stairs by the time he was seen on the second floor. Above all, they do not tell you of the overwhelming eyewitness testimony that shots were coming from behind the stone wall on the grassy knoll. In a choice between official dignity and the truth, dignity was given priority, and so you have not received the full truth. This is why there continue to be hundreds of documents still hidden from your eyes and classified as secret. And some of them bear such titles as Lee Harvey Oswald's Accessibility to Information about the U-2, the Central Intelligence Agency's dossier on Lee Harvey Oswald, and the CIA file on Jack Ruby. You have not been told that Lee Oswald was in the employ of United States Intelligence Agency, but this was the case, and so I am telling you. Why, this young uneducated man had learned to speak Russian even before he left the Marines. And there's only one way he could have learned that. Oswald had a higher security rating than his buddies in his Marine unit. During 12 hours of questioning, to give you another example, 12 hours of questioning after the assassination, there is no transcript of Oswald's statements available for you to look at. Now, it doesn't matter where you live. If somebody in your town steals a 1928 Hupmobile, what he says is written down when he's questioned. However, when the man who, is just, who has just killed the President of the United States is questioned for 12 hours, no transcript is available. There's nothing for you to look at. And believe it or not, one of the explanations given is that the room was too small to include a stenographer. And here's something else. This case has more accidental fires, more burning of paper than any murder case in history. For example, when Oswald was questioned by a federal agent in August of 1963, the notes of the interview were later burned. You cannot see the notes made by Commander Humes concerning the president's autopsy because he burned them too. One of the Questioners of Lee Harvey Oswald during the 12-hour session burned his notes. And similarly, when the, when the Warren Commission contacted the State Department and said, with regard to Exhibit 948, we noticed that a one-page message from the CIA containing secret information is supposed to be attached to this, this file and is missing. Would you please furnish us with a copy of this missing secret document? The answer given to the Warren Commission was that the secret message about Oswald from the CIA was accidentally destroyed while being thermofaxed. This spontaneous combustion, incidentally, occurred the day after the president's assassination. I'm not even going to bother to dignify the foolishness which Newsweek and NBC and some of the other news agencies have tried to make you believe about my office. I've been district attorney of New Orleans for more than five years. 
And we have never had a single case reversed because of improper methods on the part of our staff. Nor do we rush to judgment on half-baked evidence. And the proof of that is the fact that in more than five years, not one defendant has walked out of the courtroom in a murder case with an acquittal. Nor have we lost a major case in five years. Then what is their game? Their game is to fool you. These people want the investigation stopped. They don't want a trial at all. Please believe me. They don't think we're wrong in our investigation. Obviously, if our investigation was as haywire as they would like to have you think, then you would not see such a coordinated barrage coming from the news centers in the East. Why are they so concerned? Why is it that they cannot wait until the trial comes in order to learn what the facts are? Why are they so anxious to have their own trials? They know very well that the witnesses they're presenting to you have not been testifying under oath, that they're not being cross-examined as they would be at a trial, and that the opportunities for a timely rebuttal by the state of Louisiana which would exist at the trial, have not been provided in their untrue presentations. They know this. In my considered judgment, there has been an effort to prejudice in advance the potential jurors in the trial of this case. As a matter of fact, the National Broadcasting Company has already had the trial. The defendant was found innocent, and the district attorney was convicted. They announced across the nation that my methods were improper. But as their stories, one by one, turn out to be false, they do not reveal this to you, but simply search hopefully into new areas. For example, Newsweek magazine had a feature article saying that my office attempted to bribe a man named Boba. It later turned out that his story and their article was totally untrue, and the tape which Newsweek described, had been altered. The police investigators in my office were found innocent of any wrongdoing in a serious investigation conducted by the police department. However, Newsweek has made virtually no mention of that. Similarly, in its recent effort to make you think that my methods are improper, NBC announced coast to coast that it had located the real Clay Bertrand that an NBC man had talked to. This made every newspaper in the country, and it inferred, once again, that in addition to using terrible methods, we were off on a wild goose chase. Now, when it turned out that this was a total fabrication, and the man whom NBC identified as the real Clay Bertrand hotly denied ever using the name, there was only coast-to-coast -coast silence from NBC. NBC presented a professional burglar whom my office had just recently convicted and allowed him to make a plainly false presentation that we had tried to get him to climb into the defendant's apartment and plant evidence there. The inference, of course, was that this particular defendant was too lofty a character to participate in my nefarious schemes. However, recently, when we called him before the New Orleans grand jury so that he could tell all about our new venture into the burglary business, he took the Fifth Amendment.
when asked if his statement on NBC was true. Once again, this was followed by loud silence from coast to coast on NBC. As a matter of fact, the Warren Commission's inquiry into the assassination started off with a completely unacceptable philosophy for a democracy like ours. One of its stated objectives was to calm the fears of the people about a conspiracy. But in our country, the government has no right to calm our fears any more than it has, for example, the right to excite our fears about red China or about fluoridation or, or about birth control or about anything. There's no room in America for thought control of any kind, no matter how benevolent the objective. Personally, I don't want to be calm about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I don't want to be calm about a president of my country being shot down in the streets. And I don't want to be calm about the fact that for reasons of public policy or national security or any other phony reason, the true facts have been withheld from the people of this country. If the day has come when it is possible to shoot our president down because some men disagree with his foreign policy, and the day has come that the moment his heart stops beating, other considerations take over which conceal the total truth from the citizens of the United States, then the day has come when we have ceased to be a democracy. I cannot believe that this is so, that the time has come in America when the people no longer control their country. Yet I, I must confess that I'm appalled by the by the readiness with which some of the major press media have accepted the, the great fairy tale without hesitation, rousing from their stupor only when they have learned that a district attorney was violating all the rules of etiquette and digging up the truth. They're telling you that black is white when they tell you there is no evidence of a conspiracy. They have to know well the significance of the continued concealment of x-rays and autopsy pictures, which if revealed to you, would show that the president was hit by rifle fire from more than one direction. And they have to know well of the hundreds of documents which remain classified secret and concealed from your view. And they're making white black when they repeatedly state that my officers use improper methods. They have to know that no DA's office in the United States would dream of operating in the way they suggest. They have to know that for years I have been a strong defender of the rights of individuals. They have to know all of this, but they have lent themselves to the all-out effort to convince you that the matter's been looked into, and anyone who raises a question now is irresponsible or a troublemaker or an enemy of the people. What's that? You say that you are an American citizen and you want to see the autopsy x-rays and you want to see these hundreds of documents that uh, have been withheld from your view and you want to know why these vital notes always ended up being burned? What's the matter with you? Can't you take the word of these honorable men who've looked into it for you? Let me just give you one example that shows you how impossible the single assassination theory is. 
which shows you the enormity of the fairy tale which you're supposed to believe in. Now, this is the Warren Commission's own diagram of the route of the bullet through Governor Connolly. The bullet had to take this route in order to cause the injuries which he received. Now, the important thing to keep in mind is that the Warren Commission itself concedes that if this same bullet was not the one which also went through President Kennedy, then there had to be someone else firing. And the reason for that, just to put it very simply, is that the Pruder films have shown that all the firing occurred in six seconds, and yet there were a total of eight wounds. Therefore, this one bullet has to cause seven wounds, because one missed and one was the fatal shot hitting the president. So, by the Warren Commission's own admission, prior to hitting the governor, this bullet had to go through President Kennedy, who was sitting back here. Now, you'll notice that the Warren Commission did not attempt to include President Kennedy in the diagram. They could not, because the total impossibility of this bullet having gone through the president also would be too obvious. In other words, by the evidence of the Warren Commission itself, it is obvious that there was other shooting going on in Dealey Plaza. Consequently, the Warren Commission has officially concluded that before this bullet came down from the sky, as it had to, to hit Governor Connolly and all those different places, it entered President Kennedy's body from the rear and came out of his neck. I might add that the Warren Commission did not try to include the president's picture because that would have shown that the course of the magic bullet would have had to gone up in the air and come down again in order to end up hitting the governor. It is by selecting these little portions of each incident and by excluding other portions that the fairy tale is presented to you. However, if they, if they had to show in one diagram the bullet entering the president and then continuing through Governor Connolly, you would be able to see the total impossibility of this bullet causing seven wounds. Now, this is just one of many examples which, uh, which uh, show that the Warren Commission's conclusion is completely impossible. That bullet 399 is another example. The fact that uh, the cartridges in the Tippett case do not manage, match at all the bullets in Tippett's body, one after the other, if I had the total hour to reply, which NBC used to try and discredit my office, I would, I would be able to go into more matters. Let's sum it up by saying that it is completely impossible to uphold a single assassin theory if you look at it seriously. Anyone who has done their homework knows that the single assassin theory is totally impossible. In the final analysis, what has been done by the Warren Commission in its investigation is to, is to take this series of implausibilities and to attempt to prove to you that each one of them is at least mathematically possible. Each one of them is mathematically possible, but not probable. However, it is not mathematically possible for all of these series of implausibilities to have occurred. And this is what they ask you to believe. It's very much like telling you that it is mathematically possible, for example, for an elephant to hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. Of course, this is implausible. 
But what do they do? They produce an expert who says, yes, I have made a study of the situation, and uh, <clears throat> this is uh, not a full-grown elephant, and this is a particularly tough kind of daisy, and therefore it was mathematically possible. Now, the official truth as a result of such expert testimony, as a result of the creation of a series of mathematical possibilities, is now no longer what actually happened in Dallas, but what has been officially approved. Well, I say that the matter is not closed, not in this country. I say that the day has not yet arrived when the only reality is power. And the ideals on which our country was built are merely words printed on paper. I believe that those news agencies which have sought to imply that I would use improper methods to gain some sort of fictional political advantage have simply revealed their own cynicism. I believe that in this conflict between truth and power, and this is exactly what it is all about, that power cannot possibly smash truth out of existence. The people in this country will not let that happen. If we still live in the same country in which we were born, and I don't think it's changed that much, if this is still the country in which, in the words of our Pledge of Allegiance, there exists liberty and justice for all, then this attempt to conceal the full truth from you, in the end, has to be a failure. Now, in this case, I've learned more about the human race than I really wanted to know. And I've learned more about some of our government agencies than I really wanted to know. And I've learned more about some of our press agencies than I cared to know. But I am still naive enough to believe that in America, the people make the decisions, not a handful of men in the Washington and New York areas. And I believe that the people of America want to know the entire truth about how their president was shot down in the streets of Dallas. And I want to assure you that as long as I am alive, no one is going to stop me from seeing that you obtain the full truth and nothing less than the full truth, and no fairy tales. Time for the preceding program was made available to District Attorney Jim Garrison of New Orleans. The program was prepared under his sole supervision. It constitutes his reply to an earlier NBC News program examining some of the methods Mr. Garrison has used in his investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. This program originated in the studios of WDSU-TV, in New Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination, we'll continue to look at Jim Garrison's investigation. His search for the truth took him on a deep dive into governmental conspiracy theories. He even appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1968 and discussed everything from guerrillas to Texas millionaires to the involvement of the police, FBI, and CIA in the killing of President Kennedy. We'll see you next week.